Thank you very much, Amiel. Let's pray. In the book of Acts, when the early church gathered and prayed, we read that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we pray for a work of your Holy Spirit among us this morning. Lord, we have prayed. Shake this building, shake our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, D.L. Moody uh, was an American evangelist who led many thousands of people to Christ. Um, He also wrote a book about the Christian life called Your Victory in Jesus. And uh, he begins the book with a rather interesting comment about his own spiritual journey. This is what he says, quote, When I was converted, I made this mistake. I thought the battle was already mine, the victory already won, the crown already in my grasp. I thought that old things had passed away, that all things had become new and my old corrupt nature was gone. But after serving Christ for just a few months, I discovered that conversion is only like enlisting in the army. There was a battle on hand and I had to work for it and fight for it. End quote. Well, that's a very easy mistake to make, isn't it? Uh, I know I certainly made it. Uh, Maybe you did too. The initial joy of conversion and the first steps of our Christian lives can kind of leave us with the impression that the, the job's done and that the rest of our Christian lives are going to be plain sailing. And even when uh, reality kicks in and we begin to realise that at times the Christian life can be extremely tough, some of us never actually move beyond that realisation. We find ourselves, don't we, paralysed by doubts and by fears, just hoping and praying that reality will go away. But of course it doesn't. And until the Lord Jesus returns, it never will. So if we're to enjoy all that God wants us to enjoy in this life, and if we're to become the people that God wants us to be, then you and I need to know how to deal with the hard stuff and how to move on to victory. Now this is where Joshua chapter 5 is so very helpful for us. Think about it with me for a moment. I wonder what you and I would have done if we had been in Joshua's shoes at this particular stage in the story. On the last two Sunday mornings, we've been looking at the way that the Lord brought his people into the promised land by a miracle. Uh, He parted the waters of the Jordan when it was in flood and he brought Israel across on dry land. 
And as chapter 5 begins, then Israel are just six miles from Jericho. And I think if I had been Joshua, well, I would have been saying, come on, let's push on. Let's go to Jericho while the experience of the Jordan crossing is still fresh in our minds, while the people are still enthusiastic. Let's keep going. Let's see what God is going to do at Jericho. And of course, the the mood in the enemy camp would also have encouraged us to think like that. Chapter 5, verse 1, if you'll fix your eyes on it. We're told when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we'd crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, incidentally, it's, I think, rather important to see that verse 1 is actually the fulfilment of God's purpose in the last verse of chapter 4. Just scroll up the page and look at the last verse of chapter 4. Because if you look there, you'll see that God brought Israel across the Jordan by a miracle. Why did he do it? So that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And chapter 5, verse 1, the very next verse is a direct fulfilment of that purpose. So I think, uh, quite frankly, any military general worth his salt would surely be saying, come on, let's hurry on to Jericho. But you see, in Joshua chapter 5, God is not in a hurry. You see, God's problem wasn't Jericho. A couple of weeks ago, we heard from the lips of Rahab that uh, the people in Jericho no longer had the stomach for a fight with Israel. And in a sense, the battle was already won. So no, God wasn't concerned about Jericho. God's concern was with Israel. God's concern was with his own people. And you see, chapter 5 is teaching us this morning that if God's people are going to be led into victory, that is, if you and I are going to live the kind of life for which Jesus lived and died and rose again, then our relationship with God must be a living relationship. And that means there are essential dealings which God must have with us as preparation for the victory. There can be no victory in the Christian life without these preparations. So what are they? And what can we learn from Joshua chapter 5 to help us in our Christian lives this week. Well, firstly, before there could be victory, the covenant had to be renewed. The covenant had to be renewed, verses 2 to 12. Now, let me warn you, my sermon is a bit unbalanced this morning. We're going to be spending most of our time on the first point. In verse 2, you'll notice that once again, God takes the initiative. 
at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Now that's something we've seen every week, isn't it, in the book of Joshua. Every move forward for the people of God depends on God's initiative. And here, the point is that for 40 years, while Israel had been in the wilderness, the right of circumcision wasn't practised. And that, you see, was because the covenant had been suspended. Suspended due to the disobedience and the rebellion of that whole generation that God had brought out of Egypt. Now let me remind you that in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign and a seal of the special relationship between God and his people. God gave it first to Abraham, the father of the nation, and also to his descendants after him. And circumcision was practised from Abraham's time and throughout the time in Egypt, but not through their years in the wilderness, as verse 5 tells us. Verse 5, all the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. And the reason is given in verse 6. The Israelites have moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. Now what on earth had gone wrong? What was the catastrophe that derailed them? Keep a finger in Joshua 5. Turn back, please, to the book of Numbers. Numbers 14, page 110 in the Church Bibles. Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. Uh, page 110 in the Church Bible, which is uh, the right-hand column on page 110. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. Now just pause on that, because you see the people had been saying that the Lord had brought them out, out of Egypt, into the desert, to die. And eventually, after a very, very long time, the Lord said, well, if that's what you think, fine. Verse 29. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you, will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected, but you, your bodies, will fall in this desert. 
Now that is an extremely serious sentence, isn't it, that God passes on rebellious and grumbling people. I mean, think about it, they'd been given absolutely everything that they had asked for, but they were never satisfied. They always wanted more. You know, they were saying things like this, you know, what about the cucumbers and the garlic that we used to enjoy in Egypt? And why do we have to have this manna every day? And what about the nations around us? Surely God is going to allow them to attack us and we will die in the desert. And so they went on grumbling and rebelling and in the end God said, well, okay, if that's what you think, that's what's going to happen. Well, now come back to Joshua 5 because that's the background here. That whole generation, the whole generation, was rejected by God because of ingratitude and unbelief. And that's why the covenant had been suspended. Therefore, their sons didn't receive the covenant sign. They hadn't been circumcised. And now as they enter the land, well, that must be rectified. Now once again, I think the timing of God is so very striking here because it shows us, doesn't it, that God's way is always to give first and only then to ask. Haven't you found that in your own life? It's actually what grace is all about. God gives something before he asks I mean, that's how it was with Abraham, you remember. God uh, uh, brought him into the land. God gave him lots of promises. And after he'd done that, God says to Abraham, the sign of my relationship with you is to be circumcision. And it was the same with Israel. God brought them out of Egypt with signs and with wonders. The Exodus was a tremendous event, unparalleled, I think, within world history. And then God brought them to Sinai and said, Now I ask you, in fact, I command you as your God, keep my law. God gives before he asks. And that's the pattern here. God brings Israel into the land by a miracle through the Jordan, something that they never imagined for one moment could possibly happen, and then God asks, now I want your dedicated obedience. I want the special relationship to be restored. I want the mark of the covenant to be in this generation, just as it was with your fathers. And of course, the the obedience here is motivated and it's enabled by faith, Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 8. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Now, just think about the timing here. You know, this would have been the ideal moment for the Canaanites to attack them. I mean, basically, the army was incapacitated. They were sitting ducks for anybody who wanted to have a go at them. But we've already been told, haven't we, that the enemy were paralysed by fear, verse 1. So can you see that the people who obey 
are safe. And it reminds us, I think, that it's only as we put ourselves into the hands of Almighty God without reservation that we prove this to be true in our own lives. It always requires faith to obey. But it also reminds us, I think, that we can never, never justify disobedience by speculating about consequences. We can't say, God told me to do this, but I thought that if I did, the Canaanites would come along and attack me, so I didn't do it. That is no way for a Christian to live. One writer puts it like this, quote, If God shows you something, you do it. You leave the consequences with God. Make sure he's shown you. Make sure it's not just a bright idea you dreamed up for yourself. Make sure it's part of scripture. But if God has revealed something in scripture to you and the Holy Spirit has laid it on your mind and on your heart and you've tested it by time, then don't allow yourself to be deflected by what you think the consequences might be. We must trust the Lord. He will take care of the outcome. End quote. Now that's what happens here. Because verse 9 tells us that in all this, God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. He rolled away the taunting of the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians had said, if you Israelites go out into the desert, well, you'll die in the desert. But God overruled. And uh, he brought them into the good land. The land flowing with milk and honey and with riches beyond their wildest imagination. God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. But even more important, God brought them back into a living relationship with himself of which at that time circumcision was the sign and the seal. Now, what on earth does all of this have to say to you and me this morning? Well, fortunately, there are two key New Testament passages that tell us. So won't you keep your finger, please, in Joshua 5 and page ahead to Colossians 2 on page 834. Colossians chapter 2, page 834. Just one verse, verse, oh, verse 11 and verse 12, two verses, sorry. Colossians 2, page 834, verse 11. In him, that is, in Christ, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God 
who raised him from the dead. Now, I know some of that's a bit complicated. One's eyes sort of zoom in and out of the verse, wondering what on earth's going on. But the main point is clear. Because obviously Paul is not talking about physical circumcision. He says that, doesn't he, at the end of verse 11. No, he's describing the spiritual equivalent, which, says Paul, is done by Christ. And you see, in verse 11, what happens to every Christian in spiritual circumcision is the putting off, the cutting away of the sinful nature. And Paul says that is something that the Lord Jesus has already done for me as a Christian. You were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature. Now keep that in your mind as we come to the other New Testament passage in the letter before Colossians, uh, which is Philippians chapter 3 verse 3. So it's only a page or two back in your Bible. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, page 832 in the Church Bible. Philippians 3, verse 3. Paul says, For it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So you see, friends, the mark of circumcision in the Christian is that he has put off the sinful nature. That means he has no confidence in it. And now, his confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he worships him and he glories in him by the indwelling Spirit. So, friends, you see, whenever we think about circumcision, the New Testament equivalent is all of this. This is essential preparation for spiritual victory. The Christian heading for victory is someone who realises that he has been crucified with Christ. He no longer relies on his own righteousness. He no longer puts any confidence in himself. He sees his sin and his guilt only too clearly. But by God's grace, he also sees that every sin and every failure, uh, every sinful habit, all of that has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus on the cross. It has been cut away it has been disposed of. Now that is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision. But here's the thing. Pay attention to this. I have to believe that. I have to draw on that every single day of my life if I'm going to enjoy the victory. Because throughout my Christian life, the possibility of sin will always be with me. You know, my old nature will always be trying to drag me down and ruin the work that God is trying to do in my life. 
And so it's only by faith in the crucified Saviour who's conquered sin and death and it's only by drawing on his resources that I can enter into the victory that Christ has already accomplished. And don't you often find as a Christian that we're so frequently tempted, aren't we, to put our confidence in the flesh? We're so often tempted to think that you know, we can manage certain situations on our own and that we don't really need the power of God. Can I say to you this morning that whenever we do that, it's never very long before we discover that we are totally defeated spiritually. Because you see, if I think that there's anything good in me, if I think that I'm capable of living the Christian life in my own strength, well, it's time for me to go back to the camp at Gilgal and learn the lesson of spiritual circumcision all over again. What is that lesson? It is not I, but Christ. It is not my energy, but his strength. It's not my determination, it is his spirit at work within me. Now friends, that is the essential preparation for spiritual victory in our lives, every bit as much as it was for these people as they went into the promised land. I have to realise that I have been crucified with Christ, that something happened to me the moment that I put my faith in him, that the old way of living you know, was, as it were, nailed to the cross and that I've been raised to a new life. And now the Lord Jesus lives in me by his Spirit so that the resurrection life of Christ takes over in my actual experience and I live by faith in him day by day. Now that is the only way to spiritual growth and victory. Well, back in Joshua 5. It was in that renewed relationship that Israel celebrated the Passover. Verse 10, On the evening of the fourteenth day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Now, of course, they couldn't actually celebrate it before. Why not? Because the law of Moses said that no uncircumcised male could have it. But now, the covenant was renewed and so quite naturally, the Passover followed. So once again, notice God's timing. The Passover was celebrated at exactly the right time. And the Passover, as you know, was the old covenant meal that reminded Israel that God had brought about this unique relationship with himself and that they were utterly dependent on him and on his grace for that relationship to continue. 
And I think that Passover celebration must have been a great source of strength for them, don't you think? As they prepared for everything that lay before them. And then the next day, God's grace led them to the new food of the land, which was a meal, in this case, of uh, unleavened bread and roasted grain. Now, this is the other side of the covenant. Can you see the sequence? They had obeyed God, and now God began to fulfil his promises, which actually greatly exceeded anything that God had asked them to do. The food of the land was provided by God. But it wouldn't always be like that. Remember, will you, that they were coming into a land that had already been planted and sown. But as they occupied the land, they were going to have to put in energy and effort in order to go on enjoying its provision. So isn't it interesting that verse 12 tells us that the manna stopped the day after they ate the food from the land. Now that's because, you see, the manna had been an emergency provision for a special situation. But now there's going to be plenty of regular food, a a constant supply. But it isn't just going to fall into their laps. There's hard work to be done. And my dear friends, it is exactly the same for us. You know, people who know that their old way of life has been nailed to the cross, people who can come and share the new covenant meal of bread and grape juice because they know that by God's grace they're in a living relationship with God, they also know that there's work to be done. Everything doesn't just fall into our laps. There are plenty of resources. You know, there's rich food every single day in the Word of God. It is the bread of life, which speaks to us of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. That is our sustenance. That is our strength. But can I say to you this morning that it doesn't just fall into your lap. You've got to work at it. And just as they had to work the land... So you and I have to work at the scriptures. You know, one writer says this, he says, you cannot do the work of heaven unless daily you eat the bread of heaven. You cannot speak for Jesus out of your lips unless first you are enjoying him in your hearts. I think that's true. I think that's true in my own experience. And unless we're working at our faith, feeding on the word of God every single day, enjoying the Lord Jesus, well, I tell you what, we won't have anything to say or the strength to say it. He's given us all these marvellous resources which are food for life, but if we don't use them, we will be powerless and we will be utterly ineffective. We've got to draw on what God provides. That's what the covenant is all about. God gives us everything that we need, but he doesn't give it to us on a plate. He says, I want you to exercise faith in me. And that's how you grow. 
And the more that you draw on my resources, the more I will pour my resources into your life. But if you don't draw on them, you won't have them. I wonder if that's a word to someone this morning. So the covenant had to be renewed. And that's the preparation for victory in our lives. Maybe that's what's wrong in your life this morning, that you need to renew this commitment to God. He's done everything to make it possible. He's taken the initiative. But are you really dying to yourself every day? Have you got yourself on the cross and Christ on the throne? Or have you perhaps got those two things the other way round? Are you really feeding daily on the resources God has provided in his word? Some of us are weak spiritually because we don't feed on Christ. We don't draw on everything that God's provided. So when we we see a Jericho on the horizon, well, we go weak at the knees and we collapse in fear. The covenant had to be renewed. And then secondly, and much more briefly, the commander had to be revealed. Verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now these three verses, it's only three verses, but they kind of intensify and focus everything that we've learned in verses 2 to 12. And in a sense, these three verses are the secret of everything that happens in the next few chapters of Joshua. You see, I think Joshua must have had an overwhelming sense of the responsibility that was uh, on his shoulders. No doubt he was encouraged and strengthened by the Passover celebration. But don't you think that all the time, in Joshua's mind, there must have been that word Jericho? It would never have been far from his thoughts, would it? I mean, it was just down the road. Now, of course, he couldn't go back. I mean, if God had just done this marvellous miracle parting the waters of the Jordan to get Israel across, he wasn't going to do the same thing to get them back. And yet in front of them was this second impossible barrier guarding the way into the land. And Joshua must have been asking himself, well, how on earth are we going to take it? I mean, is it going to be by prayer? Or is it going to be by military strength? Should I be building ladders and battering rams? What should we be doing? And you can imagine, I think, how he must have been thinking and feeling at this point. But won't you notice in verse 13 that he wasn't inactive? He decided to do what he could and to go and have a thorough look at the problem. And so he goes out, it would seem, alone on a reconnaissance mission. And all of a sudden he he finds himself confronted by a man with a sword in his hand. 
Joshua has no clue about who he is, so he challenges him, are you for us or for our enemies? And he receives the totally strange and peculiar answer, no. That's actually what it says in the original, no. It's actually a lovely answer, because what this mysterious character is saying is, Joshua, my friend, you are asking the wrong question. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Now he might at this point have recognised the divinity of the character in front of him. Um, The fact that he calls him Lord suggests that, but that particular word is not um, very much more normally than a title of respect. But whether that's the case or not in verse 14... In verse 15, there is no doubt at all. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. Friends, this is the angel of the Lord. That, of course, is an Old Testament title for the Lord Jesus Christ, because angel in Hebrew simply means messenger, And the angel of the Lord is the messenger of God. It's the word made flesh. It's the embodiment of all that God is. He is God. He is the the visible revealer of the invisible God. And so here we have, I believe, a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus. And no doubt when he says to Joshua, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy, surely Joshua must have been reminded of the bush that burned without being consumed that Moses saw. And he would have remembered, wouldn't he, that God had revealed himself to Moses in a very similar way. And so the commander of the army of the Lord comes to direct operations in person. He's the one who's going to lead the attack on Jericho. He's the one who's going to win the victory for God's people. It's not hard, is it, for us to imagine the the relief and the joy that Joshua must have felt as he fell face down on the ground and he worshipped him. But isn't it interesting that it wasn't until Joshua was in that position that the strategy for taking Jericho was actually revealed. So what's the significance of this? Well, isn't it encouraging to notice once again that God takes the initiative? You see, Joshua went to have a good look at his problem and he found himself meeting his God. Isn't that wonderful? And haven't you perhaps known something rather similar in prayer? That you've gone, as it were, to wrestle with a particular problem in the presence of the Lord, to think it through, to pray it through, and you've met God in a fresh way. And you think to yourself, well, why on earth didn't I pray about this before? Have you had that? See, at the very precise moment of need, 
God reveals himself to those who walk with him in the dark when they don't know what's going to happen. And he reveals himself as the strategist, as the commander, and immediately the the whole mood of the moment changes because the problem is no longer on Joshua's shoulders. And friends, you know, that is the only way that any of us can do any Christian work by recognising that it's his work and his shoulders and he's the commander. I think that's something that churches need to learn again, isn't it? So it's not a matter, you see, of which side he's on. That was the question that Joshua asked. Rather, it's a matter of, am I under his authority? Because he's in control and ultimately everything stems from that fact. He's the commander. So, the essential preparation for victory at Jericho was that the earthly leader should be flat on his face before God. That was the essential preparation. And when God's man was flat on his face in obedience and submission, well then, the plans were revealed. That's when the action could begin. But not until. And friends, that is true of your life and mine this morning. That it is not until we are flat on our face before God, faces in the dust, that he lifts us up and he leads us on. It's when, you know, the man or woman of God is in worship before his holiness that he begins to show us the next step and to lead us on towards victory. And so you see, it's telling us, isn't it, that we need to be far more concerned about these priorities than uh, about ordering our ladders and building our battering rams because more often than not, we're not actually going to need them anyway. Now what's needed is for you and I to recognise and submit to the commander of the army of the Lord. And when we're in the right with him, when we've taken off our sandals because we've seen his holiness and we've realised that the most, most amazing fact is that he should bother with us at all, well, that's actually what changes things. Because we stop thinking about our plans and our ministry and our exams and our service and we see with fresh eyes that God is sovereign. Everything in our lives, everything is in his hands. And when the commander is revealed to our hearts like that, well, that's when the way is open for victory. Let's pray. Head of the Church and Lord of all. Lord Jesus, we bow before you again this morning.
We ought really to be flat on our faces before you because you are holy and we are altogether sinful. But thank you that Joshua wasn't any different from us. And none of the men that you've used in history have ever been any different. They've all been sinners who've cast themselves before you in worship and in submission. Thank you, Lord, that your power is no less real in 2017 than it was that day before Jericho. And thank you that the victory that we have is much more sure because it depends on your perfect, finished work on the cross. Thank you that the sign and seal that we have is not a physical circumcision, but the power of your Spirit at work within all those who turn and trust you. And Lord, we thank you that we ourselves are not the armies of the Lord, but rather that the great spiritual forces at your command, the armies of heaven, are at work in our world and in our situation to accomplish your great purposes. And so, Lord, please deliver us from thinking that the battle is ours. Help us to see that the battle is yours, but the victory is ours, because you've already won it. And that we don't fight for victory, but from the victory of the cross and the empty tomb. Help us this week to go wherever you lead us in that confidence knowing that we've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live, and yet not us, but Christ lives in us. Lead us in the way of your triumph, we pray, and to your name be the praise and the glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.